The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Man. I gather you've been getting yourself in a little trouble with retirees this week. It's surprising how defensive they can be of uh, their state pension, I must admit. Look, we can all be defensive of our stuff. No one wants stuff taken away. Everyone wants stuff, and then they want more stuff. They don't want less stuff. Why should pensioners be different? Oh, absolutely. And and weirdly enough, I probably have more sympathy for the pensioners than a lot of the other stuff I think should be taken away from people. That's because you're quite close to pensionable age. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> no, he's exactly. not, by the way, everybody. I am joking. He is nowhere near it. We're talking about the UK <laughs> pensions triple log, obviously, as everyone knows, uh, the way in that uh, UK pensions, uh, UK state pensions are basically pegged to the highest number anyone can find anywhere. Something that used to work when the state pension was far too low. But now, of course, the state pension is actually pretty good. And it's beginning to look a bit weird for pensioners to get a higher rise in their real terms income than pretty much anyone else in the UK. Is that basically what you're thinking, John? That, that's basically it. It's, it's, I suppose it's the the main issue here is so we had the triple lock that was introduced in 2010, and that was at a time when the state pension was considered to be too low, and that was probably fair at the time. Um, and so we've gone to a situation where now pensioners and pensioner households are less likely to be in poverty than other households. And this is relative poverty, by the way, but let's not even start going into let's that. Let's not start on that. Yeah, because anyway. Um, so at some point, pension households were, were poorer or more likely to be poorer, and now they're more likely to be richer. Um, and so it does seem odd that we have this triple lock, which makes sure that pensioners either get 2.5% or CPI or average earnings, whichever is highest. And not only whichever is highest, but whichever is highest in a specific month because... You know, just because they they want to make the decision in September, and so what ends up happening is you get um, it's the July figure for wages, and it's the uh, the August figure I think for CPI, um, and so basically it's a one-off number. So you can also get completely derailed by some quite arbitrary thing, and to an extent that's happened this uh, time round because average wages came in um, at eight point five percent. That's like including bonuses. And that bonuses bit was actually including the pay settlements made to the NHS and other civil servants um, to kind of stop the strikes, basically. So it's not just a kind of, it's not even an annual bonus, it's a kind of one-off kind of payment that's distorted the figures higher. So it just seems nuts that the state pension is going to go up by 8.5% in April 2024 because A, we've got a distorted figure, but B, more importantly... You know, is, is this what we're trying to fix anymore? Given that we apparently have a finite amount of money, which we do to no, spend on things. No, we don't. You can print as much money as you like. Everyone knows that. And it doesn't cause inflation either. Is that the MMT people? Have they been? Have they been? They're here. Have they been handing you printed money? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Unfortunately, no one pays me for my opinions. Disappointing, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um. But yeah, no. But so yeah. Is is our priority as a nation at the moment to increase the state pension in real terms, bearing in mind that the state pension is a universal benefit? So you know, all of these people, you know, whenever people complain about it on Twitter, it's like they they're talking about the the group of pensioners who are poor. So I tell you, what, if you're worried about poor pensioners, how about we focus on giving them, you know, benefits or whatever kind of section of the uh, the the kind of the welfare system should be targeted. Rather than just increasing the kind of universal, uh, essentially universal basic income for the over sixty-eight year old, 
um, is what we're talking about here. And, and we we don't have the money to pay for that. Um, but of course, so, the benefit system does already do that in that, uh, you know, it provides a, a, a raft of other benefits for people who are living in, in poverty or people who don't have the income to sustain themselves. And you may say that those other benefits aren't, aren't good enough, but there is a case to be made for simply, as you say, increasing housing benefit for all the people, increasing the, uh, the payouts for energy, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of different things that can be done to help the um, increase, you know, not, not huge group of people who don't have any other income that would be more efficient. Well, yeah, but that is the other point because it's not the majority, you know. It's it's definitely a minority that are, you know, completely dependent on the state pension. So again, if you're if you're qualm about reducing the triple lock to just an inflation indexing thing, is that it might hit poorer pensioners? Is well, the answer is well, focus on the poorer pensioners. What I do think is an interesting question. One I would like to ask you is, um. The other response that comes back a lot is that we need to start means testing the state pension, uh, you know, so that, you know, whatever, Alan Sugar and people like that aren't getting it anymore or, you know, entitled to it anymore. And, um, I mean, I'm, it's a kind of ones I'd be reluctant to open, but I can definitely see the argument for it. Yeah, I can see the argument for it as well, but I also think it's politically impossible much better to do what we just discussed and hold it at its current level in real terms or even you know let it slide in real terms and provide a high level of, of benefits to those who need it i mean you know we have to work within the realms of, of reality don't we i mean another thing another thing that that people sometimes suggest and that i have some sympathy with is to say okay you think the state pension isn't high enough well we can we can fix that by simply removing all relief on private pension savings outside outside the um, the state pension and then transfer the money saved from that tax relief directly into the state pension. That would come to about five grand an old person, making the um, the state pension more like 14, 15 grand than its current level of knocking around 10. So, you know, that's kind of an, an interesting idea, although, of course, again, it would um, widen the pension divide between the public sector and the private sector. Yeah, and it kind of, uh, I'm always reluctant about the tax relief argument for the same, you know, reason that, that you pointed out before. Is that thing, if you're not, if you're not offering tax relief on a pension, then you're, you're kind of ordinary person, if you like, through their working life, who kind of has to get their pension at the time when they're earning lots of money is to, or, you know, at their maximum earning years. So when they're a 40% taxpayer is when they should be, you know, contributing and getting the tax relief, then it sort of feels uh, like what's the point in saving into a pension then? Um, and I mean, actually, yeah, you can see how actually ISAs would probably become much more popular because they don't get taxed on the way out. Um, yeah, so, and you know, you can put 20 grand a year into an ISA, so you can use that to build up a perfectly good retirement fund. Doesn't Don't have to call it a pension, but it's the same thing, right? Yeah, and I mean, maybe, maybe it all comes back. I mean, I remember you wrote something a while ago about um, basically the you know the the lifetime allowance sort of being gradually placed at the point where the the government thinks how much money you need to live on in retirement without you know uh, having any state help, and that's the whole point of the private pension saving system. Absolutely, it's not designed um, to give you money beyond the money you need to not be dependent on the state, and as soon as any any um, tax reliefs or anything like that get to a point where the system incentivizes you to save into these products more than you require to not be dependent on the state, then it's pointlessly expensive. That was a very long sentence, but I know you understand what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean maybe, maybe if we just um, were a little bit more upfront and said, right, well, look, this, this is what we think a pensioner should be living on as a minimum. And well, um, not what should be not what they should be living on. What uh, what the state should be providing for them to live on. That's what you mean. We're not going to be judgmental about what people have or don't have, are we? Not no, but I mean, but, I mean that makes it, if you're if that's the sort of the goal. Look, here's the minimum uh, beyond which the state's not going to need to worry about you anymore. Then maybe you're right. Maybe we should be just scrapping tax reliefs and raising it to that minimum, um, and then clawing back. You know that 
the minimum in the form of tax from the kind of uh, wealthier pensioners anyway. Um, yeah, might write a column <laughs> about that to see how many people get angry about that. All the, the response that you've had to your column about how the UK pensions triple lock needs to go, have there been any any responses that you found particularly compelling? Well, I'd say it's more the 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 split. It's kind of you've obviously you've got lots of young people who are kind of you know pro it and kind of liking it on Twitter and all that sort of stuff. And the, the people who object are, I'd say, but they're largely already pensioners. Um, and it is one of those things where you know they feel well, I've you know paid in or you know I've paid my stamp, my national insurance all my life, so you know why am I not entitled to this? And most of the time it is kind of. You know, I I don't I hate to say it, but it's kind of missing my point because you know I'm not actually saying that we should scrap the state pension or even reduce it in real terms. I'm literally just saying that actually raising it with earnings every year seems a little bit excessive, given that you know, it's also, most it's also workers full, haven't had you know, yeah. real term pay rises for ages. Yeah, um, it's also a so, full misunderstanding of how national insurance national insurance actually works, isn't it? Oh well, yeah, I although from that point of view, I can't blame them. Um, given that it's you know, yeah, we they need to merge national insurance and and uh, income tax, which would help perhaps with some of this. Well, I'm um, very torn on all this, John, and that you know, as you know, I'm a. I, I always worry about state spending, worry about the deficit, worry about the debt, worry about who's getting all the money, where the money comes from, etc. But on the other hand, I, I would just love to get a really great state pension, money sent to me every month by the government. I don't have to do anything for it. I don't have to worry about my asset allocation or think about my, you know, my shares, my bonds, etc. And the money just comes. Oh, that's like being a public sector employee, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I would, and I mean, I would <laughs> love would that. Nice. I would love that. So I'm torn between my, my feelings that it's not appropriate in this environment and my sort of desperation to have a, a high real income uh, myself on retirement. So, you know, there you go. Swings and roundabouts. Actually, the, the one thing that I did spot, which I thought was interesting, it was it was a separate, um, they, they wasn't responding directly to what I was said, but um, it was a calculation that you'd need something like quarter of a million in a DC pension pot to actually buy the state pension now after it goes up. Um, and I think that just, that does give some perspective on A, how, you know, how valuable the state pension is. Um, and B, on just how valuable a DBE pension, particularly in the public sector, which is the only place you'll get one now, um, really is as well. And maybe, and yeah, that probably is the kind of disparity that we really need to be looking at. But again, that's so politically toxic. And also all of the people who are in charge of that bit get DBE pensions themselves. So yeah, I can't see that think, happening either. If you think you got hate mail for talking about the triple lock, just wait what happens when you start writing about uh, public sector defined benefit pensions. <laughs> right. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is Matt Cole, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Strive Asset Management. Uh, Matt has a long career behind him, at one point overseeing more than $70 billion in actively managed fixed income portfolios. Now, Strive, you might have heard of. It's an anti-activism fund management company co-founded by Republican presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, who you may have heard from on this podcast before. Strive has recently crossed $1 billion worth of assets that doesn't sound much in the context of the big asset managers in the US, but given that it only launched in 2022, with backing by the way from billionaire investors, including Peter Thiel and Bill Ackman, it's not bad at all. Now, the idea here is to be the opposite of the investment giants such as BlackRock, which will emphasize environmental, social and governance, i.e. ESG, focus investing above all sorts of other things. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Marin. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, we're going to go straight in, Matt. I'm going to ask you a very simple question that I think has a simple answer and lots of people think has a complicated answer. So let's see which way you go on it. Matt, what should a company do? A for-profit company's primary purpose should be to maximize value. The idea that all stakeholders aren't traded equally. The shareholder is more important than other stakeholders. That, to, in our view, is the purpose of a corporation. Are other stakeholders important at all, or is the shareholder the only important group when it comes to how a company operates? Absolutely. All, all stakeholders do matter, but our view is that you can't serve two masters, and so you actually have to pick a priority. You have to pick a purpose. So amongst all stakeholders, of which the shareholder is one, the shareholder is the most important stakeholder for a for-profit company. Now, to maximize value over the long run, you have to, as a company, care about the stakeholders, the other stakeholders. You have to care about the customer. The customer needs good products, good services to keep coming back to your company. You have to have employees that are motivated, that are satisfied, that want to stay and want to work hard for your company. They matter. You obviously have to work friendly with the areas in which you operate, the, the communities in which you operate. They all matter, but they matter to maximize value. And I think that's the thing that's, that's missing in today's world, and, and specifically in the asset management industry, the idea that you can both do good and make money at the same time. You might be able to do good, but you have to define your purpose. And I think that's what's missing in the current stakeholder capitalism movement that is growing across America at the moment. It's interesting. And one of the things that we have been told, haven't we, over the last 15 years or so with the huge rise of the ESG market is that investing with a view to ESG principles or putting ESG principles at the top of your list of things you look for when you invest is something that will automatically give you better returns. We've been told that consistently. Companies with good ESG make more money. And I've looked at that all the way through, and maybe you have as well, and said, well, hang on a tick here. All that's happening here is that we're in a growth environment. And in a growth environment, growth companies tend to have better ESG metrics than some older companies for obvious reasons. So if you have a growth bubble building, it will look like companies with better ESG scores outperform, but that's a short-term thing related to very low interest rates and related to the way low interest rates encourage the asset, the prices of growth assets to rise. Absolutely. And, and that is why I also personally haven't done a victory lap of saying it's now proven that ESG underperforms now that energy stocks are, are doing better. It's purely a sector view when it comes to ESG funds outperforming or underperforming because there's sector biases in many of those funds. I, and I think that another thing that you said that stuck out to me is the idea that companies that do better with ESG, and that gets to a problem that I have with the ESG movement, 
since day one, we've said at Strive that we're not anti-ESG, but I think it's also fair to say that we think the corporate ESG movement has been very value destructive. And I think that's that's important for a couple of reasons, because one, as a portfolio manager, I've been someone that's been in the asset management industry now for over 17 years. I believe strongly that any portfolio manager needs to look at every single risk factor that they can. I believe in the mosaic theory when it comes to portfolio management of looking at all risk factors. That would include environmental risk factors. It would include social risk factors. It would include governance risk factors. Heck, our company strive, its core differentiator is corporate governance. We're clearly not anti-corporate governance. But what I think happened in the corporate ESG movement is it's there's not an allowed wide range of views when it comes to E risk factors, S risk factors, or G risk factors. It's quote unquote the ESG risk factors. And I think that's a problem. And it's very different from other risk factors in portfolio management. If you were to ask a portfolio manager to give their view on recession risk or inflation risk, if you ask five different portfolio managers, you would get five different answers. But for some reason, when it comes to ESG, you're either pro-ESG or you're anti-ESG. It's not just what are your views of those risk factors. And I think that's where it's gone wrong in, in the corporate ESG movement, but it's also where it's gone wrong in the pushback against ESG as a whole, where many states in the United States have tried to ban considering ES or G risk factors in investment decisions. And I think that's also an incorrect solution. Okay, so we do need to consider ESG, but only in the context of having an eye to it, enhancing the long-term profit-making potential of a company. I think the correct debate is actually shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism. How you started this conversation, what is the purpose of a for-profit corporation? That's the debate that needs to be had. And what we see in the asset management industry today is every large asset manager, or almost every large asset manager in America, saying that they subscribe to the stakeholder capitalism mindset that shareholder primacy is outdated. And so then when you go downstream of that, of course, the ESG movement is not being viewed from a fiduciary lens of value maximization. If the top, at the top level, there was a recommitment to corporations making money, then you go downstream of that, then you're looking at E, e factors, S factors, and G factors to the correct fiduciary lens. And I think if they were being looked at through those lens, they would be treated very differently, both in terms of the outcomes, what type of views are being talked about in those risk factors, but then also the materiality of those risk factors. I don't think you would see ESG as a top headline in Bloomberg News every single day if it was actually thought about in the correct order of magnitude of risk factors in portfolio management decisions. There's legal risk for fund managers that are looking at ESG factors above returns to shareholders in that they're not fulfilling their fiduciary duty to their clients. I do think that there is legal risk factors. It kind of gets back to the where has the pushback to ESG gone wrong. And I think some of the initial legal cases that I've seen push back at considering those risk factors versus I think what you said is not trying to maximize value. And when asset managers explicitly say that, like in an, as an example, in 2019, the business roundtable statement that redefined the purpose of a corporation to move American corporations away from shareholder primacy that was signed by 181 CEOs, including the CEOs of BlackRock and Vanguard, that to me introduce, introduces legal risk as a fiduciary. Yeah, and particularly because at that point, the majority of clients wouldn't have understood how that was going to work. And even now, I imagine there's scores of retail clients in the US and in the UK who don't quite understand that shareholder returns are not absolutely at the top of the list. Absolutely. And it's a very challenging subject to understand. And even this year, as we are, we're wrapping up the 2023 proxy voting season, you're starting to see articles come out that talk about how like, 
BlackRock supported only 9% of ESG proposals. Vanguard was even lower than that. And on the headlines, they might make one think, oh, they're actually changing their views because of this pushback. They say the opposite. They say, no, there's redundancy in them. But what's important to note, a couple of years ago, you might have remembered the Dillbook conference with Andrew Ross Sorkin, where he was interviewing Larry Fink, and Larry Fink says, we are forcing behaviors. And this clip goes viral, right? And it's a 30-minute 30, 30 conversation, but what was important was actually the context of why he said that. And that's never actually shown in the, in the clips that go viral. What he was talking about was how do you force behaviors? What are we trying to force behaviors to do? And he talks about how you actually force behaviors is by changing the incentive compensation structure across corporate America. And so why is this important? Because if you were to compare in 2011, almost no companies had incentive compensation at the C-suite tied to ESG or DE&I measures. Today, over 75% of the companies in the S&P 500 directly tie part of incentive compensation to these non-pecuniary ESG and DE&I factors. And so when you look at the proxy season today and you see that BlackRock and Vanguard largely voted for, I think it might be that they voted for 100% of the time, we're still confirming the resolutions on the proxy ballot that were suggested by management with regards to ESG and DEI, but they they largely voted against the ones that were put forth by nonprofits. Well, they've already implemented the stakeholder capitalism and ESG agenda by changing the incentive compensation structure. That was how you force behaviors. Okay, so they make management they make management do it for them. They don't need the nonprofits to come up and put down new resolutions because they've already put the incentives in place to make sure that management do it first. Exactly. So, so when we think about how do you actually restore value maximization across corporate America, you have to undo that. You have to undo that compensation system that's already been put in place. And when it comes to that, we pretty much stand alone currently as one of the, to our knowledge, the only asset manager that's standing for re-implementing shareholder capitalism across America. And so that's why I think this this debate, this this fight has a long ways to go. I, I'm with you on the fight. I'm a great believer in shareholder capitalism. But let's look at it another way for a minute. Why, why does it matter? Why does it matter if shareholders get slightly lower returns, but along the way, the world becomes a better place? That That's a decision for, for the government to decide, the people to decide, the people in a democracy to decide. As an asset manager, we have a fiduciary duty to maximize value. It gets into kind of the why for myself of why did I get into this even in the first place? I was at CalPERS, the largest pension fund in California. I, I joined there during the middle of the great financial crisis, which I know in, in your conversation with Vivek, you talked a little bit about how that great financial crisis is really what brought the uprise of stakeholder capitalism and ESG in America, which I completely agree with. And for myself, I was going to school, finance major. My parents were law enforcement officers who had their pensions tied to CalPERS. And great financial crisis happens and the funded ratios of pensions across America, across the world plummet. And I went to CalPERS to try to help fix that problem, to maximize value, to provide a secure retirement pension to my parents. That was that was my why. And and I got there and, and literally on day one there, CalPERS, the board had forced the pension to divest from tobacco stocks. And it was a decision that even almost everybody in the investment staff did not want to do, pushed back against, but the board made it happen anyways. And I think that's a lot of what happens is I, I didn't feel, you know, some might say, you know, CalPERS is the tip of the ESG, you know, movement and, and BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, they're the, they're the weight behind them. But, but you know, the, a lot of these pensions are the tip of the movement. Well, I didn't actually, I, I do believe that's true, but I don't believe it's true at the investment staff level. I think there, there is mostly a commitment to fiduciary duty. And that's part of what gives me hope that we actually can succeed 
if this is worded well, and it's not worded in a way of don't look at a risk factor, but maximize value. That is your purpose, period. Is there any sector that you wouldn't invest in that you find genuinely distasteful? I have one. It's the house building sector. In the UK, the houses that they build us are such appalling quality and so absolutely horrible. I always think to myself, I have a moral aversion to the house building sector, which given that I have a moral aversion to almost very little else in investing, everyone always thinks it's slightly odd, but I, I just think they're such a distasteful group of companies. Is there any group of companies that you feel similarly about? I, I grew up uh, with the saying, I, I grew up as a, as a fixed income manager and, and in fixed income, there's a saying that there's no bad bonds, there's only bad prices. Yep. And, and so absolutely, <laughs> when, it, when it comes to prices or an outlook on a sector or companies, yes. But when it comes to if, it, if the price is right, I believe in asset management, it's, it's kind of like a, a sport our job is to maximize risk adjusted returns. And, and to do that, you can't exclude a sector. Yeah. And everything else is the government's responsibility. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that you can, you, you can have open conversations, obviously. Like, there's no reason that we can't have open conversations about trade-offs, right? If, if you implement some sort of regulation that might constrain returns and it might be better for society, that is for the citizens to decide the rules of which asset management operates in, the rules of which corporations operate in. And there's no reason that we can't have an open conversation about some of those trade-offs. But once the rules are set, our job is to maximize value. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about how you are investing now. I am very interested in your most recent ETF launch because this is what you do, right? It's mainly an ETF business. Um, the launch of a new business called uh, Fang 2.0 ETF. Now, I've, I've written about the new Fangs before, but t- tell us about it from your point of view. Who are, what are the new Fangs and uh, wh- why have you created this ETF? You know, our first several ETFs were more about broad market equity beta with a corporate governance differentiator to get corporations focused on value maximization. But I'm an investor at heart and have have many views. And I think there's many secular changes that are happening right now are, are, are well underway. And one of them is persistently higher inflation over the next market cycle. And another one is a trend of deglobalization that I think is pretty, pretty well underway. And then I think both of those contribute to higher geopolitical tensions. And, and so those are the macro secular environment that we see happening over the next five to 10 years. And I think that changes 
which sectors have tailwinds that could lead to outperformance. And so if we think about the prior 15 years, you had low interest rates, quantitative easing programs that were very supportive of the growth sector. And in the growth sector, the FANG tech stocks were among the, the best performing stocks. The current secular trends, I think, support five different sectors. And those sectors are fossil fuels, aerospace and defense, agriculture, nuclear energy, and then gold and precious metals. So we created a, 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 new, a new ETF, it's thematic ETF, that holds those five sectors. The new FANG, we call it FANG 2.0. Thought from an ESG point of view, almost all of these are things that would previously have been considered to be very anti-ESG and people wouldn't have been keen on them. But you look at them again now, fossil fuels, people are coming around to the idea that perhaps we've tried to go net zero a little bit too fast and that fossil fuels are going to be part of our energy makeup almost indefinitely. So we must, mustn't be too mean to them because we need them. Aerospace, you know, defense until, um, no, well, not even 18 months ago was considered to be an absolute no-no in any ESG portfolio. But now now, of course, uh, defense is considered to be a genuine social good. Bit of a shift there. Agriculture is still working our way around, aren't we? Um, and nuclear as well. So, you know, you could have advertised this not as FANG, FANG 2.0, but as the, the anti-ESG portfolio. You, you might be able to, but it's pretty surprising to me. And it's one of the things we've talked about since day one of Strive, specifically around nuclear energy, that nuclear energy should not be something that's considered anti-ESG. It actually should be considered very pro-ESG as the most reliable, scalable source of clean energy that, that we know. And obviously it's been constrained from through regulation. We see some shifting winds there and a little bit more acceptance of nuclear in the ESG movement, but for ourselves, we also think that nuclear represents a great solution of reliable, sustainable energy. And obviously, it's a very long cycle to get new nuclear plants live, but we see the winds moving in that direction. And, and so think that, you know, that sector can can benefit. So if, if you think about all the sectors combined, I think that's where, you know, it might be a little... Um, less anti-ESG. And on, on, on the gold side, it's... Oh, can I, sorry, can of... I keep you with nuclear for a minute? Because I'm, I'm, abs I'm absolutely with you that nuclear is a solution to the majority of our problems as long as we can get our electricity grids up to speed in order to you know, send the electricity that we create with our nuclear energy. So nuclear is the answer. So what, what companies are held in the ETF that represent that theme? So it's it's based on a, a market cap weighting and and what it looks at right now is is it looks at the new the Bloomberg nuclear BI index. And so it's it's primarily energy producers that have a majority of their energy from nuclear energy is 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 mainly what it is right now. Okay. Right, moving on to gold. Was it gold you were about so, to talk about so next? Gold, I mean, I'm, I'm a long-term gold bug, long-term gold bug, and always ask questions about gold on this podcast, but it rarely comes up quite so early in the conversation. So this is exciting for my gold bug listeners. Uh, well, historically, I've been more of a, over the last five years, more of a Bitcoin bug than a gold bug. But um, when it comes to... We don't, we don't like that on this gold, podcast, by the way. We don't really, we don't really go for the Bitcoin it's, it's, thing. It's, it's, it's okay. We, we, don't, we don't have to agree on everything. <laughs> um, but, but when it comes to gold, it's, it's precious metals miners more broadly than, than just gold. And, and so when I think about just bringing it back to the ESG, anti-ESG theme... Well, some of those miners are actually very important to support different industries that would be very friendly in the ESG movement that need batteries, right? As 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 an example, so um, it is primarily gold, but I, but I I think it kind of gets to some of the inconsistencies of of the ESG movement is where does these batteries, where do some of these solutions come from that are needed to support wind, solar, non-reliable sources of energy, electric vehicles, um, those sorts of things. And, and, and that 
that component of Fang 2.0 does have some of those stocks in it. And, and I think you're right that and one of the criticisms of some of these sources of energy, the reliable sources of energy, is that they're not as clean as they might appear. Um, so that does support the, the anti-ESG nature of it. It's interesting. There is a problem. You know, I was reading a, an article the other day about how difficult it is for mining, the big mining companies, to get employees these days. You know, nobody's studying mining engineering. Uh, the young are not interested in the industry because they consider it to be a, you know, an unpleasant, dirty and environmentally unfriendly industry. Whereas, of course, if they genuinely believe in the importance of the energy transition, our young should be running towards these mines um, because we, we need the mining industry to get out the metals that are absolutely vital to make the batteries to make the transition work if it's ever going to work. So the miners are one of the most important parts of the energy transition, but that's not how they're perceived. Yeah, no, it, exactly. And I'm sure it's a, it's, just, it's a lack of understanding there. And and one of the just last interesting things about the the, the G, the gold, section sector within the FANG 2.0 is, you know, how do we think about just owning gold outright versus owning miners? Well, if you've been following gold, and it sounds like you have as a gold bug, you know that miners have not performed very well, have not kept up with gold itself in, in, in the gold rise, right? And and we've looked into that pretty deeply and, and think that there is an opportunity for a mean reversion trade to to happen there and actually like owning the miners themselves over over gold. Okay, so holding gold for you is not about a hedge against a long-term hedge against inflation or anything like that. It, it's simply a an investing equation. Uh, holding holding the miners is but but holding but the G is will benefit I think both from the heightened inflation but I think gold also benefits from heightened geopolitical tensions as well. Let's talk briefly about agriculture then, which is another one of them, another one of the things you hold in this FANGS 2.0. How does that fit in? Well, it fits in, in, in a couple of different areas. So we think that the ag sector will benefit from outperform versus other sectors when it comes to sustained higher inflation. And the easy way to explain that is pretty simple. And it's that the pricing power, the elasticity in price when it comes to our food supply is pretty simple to understand. It's going to be one of the last things that people will stop um, eating. Or, and, and, and so we think that it's, it's more of like a, a value type sort of story and value at the at the base layer of the actual food supply itself. And, and think that, you know, when you think about growth stocks versus value stocks that that that's a that's a sector that just grows with the need for more food and it it has ability to push um, higher prices directly to to the consumer and and not get bogged down from higher inflation interesting there's one of your other etfs i wanted to ask you about which is that your emerging markets etf is x china and you've written a bit about um china risk uh, can we talk about that a little bit? So when we think about X China, why X China, we we make a statement that we we see China risk as investment risk, and there's a lot of reasons why why that is. A big one is the geopolitical tension side and deglobalization and movements away from importing in to the U.S. from China. But there's actually a a deeper reason that I think makes China completely uninvestable in America, even if you discounted the China risk that I just said and had a bull, bull case on China, bull view on China, and that gets into the securities that an American investor can invest in when investing in China. And the, the largest companies, the most um, critical to China's natural national security interests like Alibaba, like Tencent. As a U.S. investor, you cannot own true equity in those corporations. You can only own what's called a VIE, a variable interest entity. And, and what that is, is it's a shell corporation typically incorporated in the Cayman Islands. That's a pass-through entity that where the profits would be passed through that entity and to the American investor. And the risk with that structure is because you are not a true owner of the actual equity, there's risk that even the SEC talks about 
that those entities could be written off, written to zero, while the actual true entity in China remains unharmed, the American investor can be wiped out. And we think that's that's classic G risk. And if we go to ESG terms, governance risk, although I think in the ESG movement, G doesn't actually typically refer to true G risk, but that is unhedgeable governance risk. And we think that as, as an American, it just makes China uninvestable. And, and so we don't think that you should have China exposure as an American investor. At, at any price, you said earlier, there's always a price. So no price for China. There's, there's always a price. I mean, but this is really, you know, zero to one risk. And I, and I think, I think that's, that's really tough to, to hedge. If, if, if um, they started trading at a 90% discount, you know, maybe we could, we could th- talk about it, but at that price, at that point, it's probably going to zero. Fair enough. Um, let's talk a little bit about the bond market because you are really a, a bond investor, aren't you? I mean, that's how you started and, and you got, have, you've got a couple of bond ETFs, haven't you? Yes. The Strive Total Return and the Strive Enhanced Income Short Maturity ETF. So you're still involved in the bond market. You haven't gone completely over to the dark side. Uh, no, I, I, I love the bond market. And so we just launched two bond ETFs in mid-August of, of this year. Like you said, a total return bond fund and then an ultra short enhanced income bond fund. And both of those are actively managed products versus all of our equity products are passive. Although the, the FANG 2.0 one is, is a passive thematic product, which is obviously a pretty, pretty fun one to talk about. Uh, on the bond side, it's completely active. So the total return bond fund, we're going toe to toe with the PIMCOs, the double lines of the world, um, and, and kind of have a very similar setup for the structure of that fund. It's a tough market out there though, isn't it? I mean, the great bond bull market that we've all happily lived through over the last 40 years is pretty much, pretty much gone, not coming back. It, 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 it is, it is gone and several, um, friends and mentors spent their entire career in fixed income in a bond bull market and then, you know, retired when interest rates are at 1%. I, I applaud them for uh, their their career timing. Was it, was yeah, it career it is, timing much... or did they just get so rich they thought, thought it, I'll go? It's just good luck, not career timing. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit of both, uh, but but it is it is a more difficult environment, right? Like you're you're seeing correlations between equities and bonds become a little bit more mixed. Where you know for the last forty years you've had uh, negative correlations, which has been great for for returns of portfolios. It, it's a different environment, but my belief is that most portfolios, most individuals should have exposure to fixed income as part of a, a core portfolio holding. And so our, our view is one of expecting for interest rates to remain elevated, um, although right now we have a, a pretty neutral view on, on duration over the rest of the year and think that short term there's, there's some tailwinds that could lead to a, a little bit of a bond rally, but um, we're actually positioned neutral when it comes to duration in our total return bond fund um, and positioning for an expectation eventually of, of yields to kind of continue to move higher. So when when you say that people should still have exposure to to bonds and some credit risk in their portfolios, you're not really talking about an old fashioned sixty forty portfolio. It sounds like you wouldn't go anywhere near that at the moment. That that really depends on that's that's not what we do. That depends on the individual. I, I think that generally, over the next market cycle, I would probably want to own less fixed income, I, I'm, I, but but not none. I would want to own less growth stocks, but not none. I would want to own more value stocks. And obviously, we, we have a view of what within the value around the FANG 2.0 stocks, um, energy also just generally. But you still don't want, obviously, you're not going to want to go all in on, on those. It's more of an overweight versus the standard positions. If you had to pick one sector from all these fascinating, exciting sectors, um, and of course you would never have to do this and it's not investment advice, but if you did have to pick one, one sector that you find the most interesting over the next decade or so from an investment point of view, what would it be? Definitely the energy sector. And that was why we, we launched our first fund as, as drill. We are incredibly bullish. We, we remain incredibly bullish on the energy sector and, and think that the ESG movement is, is a contributing factor to why we are so bullish on the energy 
sector as well as some of those secular trends that we that we talked about already but but definitely had to choose one energy but when we think about the five of them in totality it do, they do have different tailwinds behind them and when we think about portfolio diversification that's why we like not just only owning one sector but within them for sure energy okay um I have questions, but they'll have to wait for another time. Um, let it never be said that we're not open-minded on the Marin Talks Money podcast. Okay, final question. And I already know the answer to this, which is kind of irritating, but I'll ask it anyway, because I ask everybody, you've got to hold one of them. As you know, we, we, we've changed the question slightly, back to the beginning. Um, we've started asking a new question, a slightly wider question. We used to ask everybody, 10 years, Bitcoin or gold. But now that rates are up quite a lot, we've refined it, and we asked 10 years, Bitcoin, gold or cash you can only choose one you see the, the, the I, I i will i will answer that question but i'll say the the timing of 10 years makes it a little bit more challenging yes it does but I, it's it, not it supposed to does. be easy I, matt it's not supposed to be easy <laughs> but i i would i would still go bitcoin <gasps> i know that you will disagree with that no it's but, not about um, me disagreeing I, I, this is so exciting you are the first person to ever take Bitcoin over a 10-year period on this podcast. I'm going to extend this podcast by two minutes so you can explain to us why that is. All yours. Well, when it comes to the security of Bitcoin, every single day, every single year that it exists without a hack in the actual code of Bitcoin, to me, makes the riskiness of it over the next 10 years decline. And so I think that's 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 one reason that if you were to ask me the same question in 2016 when I first started getting into Bitcoin after having followed it even for multiple years before that just thinking it was a scam, I would have answered gold for sure even though I was investing in it at the time more from a short-term horizon. But when I think of accept, acceptance of Bitcoin as a an asset to hold into the future, I think it's going nothing but up. When I think about the younger generation that are growing up that are much more digitally native. I think that it's going to change how the investors, millennials, think about what they are investing in. And I think those are all going to be important tailwinds to support long-term investment in Bitcoin. I mean, even if you look at, you know, obviously we are rivals with BlackRock and talk about them in negative manners a lot, but on that same Dillbook conference that I talked about with, you know, forcing behaviors and Larry Fink, he talked about um, Bitcoin as only being a tool for money laundering. And now BlackRock is leading the charge to launch the first Bitcoin ETF. They have changed their views. Jamie Dimon has changed, is starting to change views, take a little bit more of a friendly approach towards Bitcoin. And I think you're starting to see institutional adoption of Bitcoin. And I, I think that, you know, the, the return potential of Bitcoin as, as it obviously matures and is trading at much higher prices is not what it once was where, you know, the case for 100x and the price of Bitcoin. That's not a scenario that we want because that would probably be the failing of the U.S. dollar. And that's not a that's not a belief that I, I believe is you know something that's going to happen in the next 10 years or hopefully never. But I do think that Bitcoin can still outperform gold over the next 10 years. And 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 cash. I, I I would not want to be a cash investor over the next ten years. Well, John, I thought that was completely fascinating. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Well, I suppose, I suppose yeah, I think it's. I like it because it's going back to that sense that we should be worrying about uh, you know the Milton Friedman thing of the, the, the thing that basically keeps a company honest is focusing on shareholder value. Um, and that is the one thing that it should be focusing on. And the one thing we can properly measure, the one thing we can properly know is happening and everything else should be, um, you know, how companies should behave and what they should do should be the responsibility of government. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty compelling argument, isn't it? It is. I mean, the the real. I mean, I suppose the really weird thing is that we ever lost sight of it in the first place. But then that's uh, that's what happens whenever you've got zero interest rates for so long, and everything becomes detached from reality. I think it's kind of a luxury product, isn't it? Share prices yeah. all going up anyway, so you can you can do this stuff. And one of the things he talked about that I found kind of interesting was about how 
uh, CEO pay is increasingly linked to ESG targets. Uh, so, you know, you get extra money if you if you achieve this, that or that in the ESG metric world of metrics, which is kind of meaningless anyway. Is it just a way to uh, to pay CEOs more? Because we're always looking for ways to pay CEOs more and more and more, aren't we? And the data shows that um, uh, you know ESG pay doesn't have any impact on financial performance or for that matter on share price it doesn't make them perform yeah i think better. that's a good point is that there's always been that thing with um chief execs that there's always ways to look for fluffier methods of measuring the performance so it gets easier and easier for them to you know keep getting paid what they're getting paid um and esg's been kind of classic on that i mean i don't I think that'll continue to be the case for Ever, never, because there's always an incentive to find ways around that. But you just have to keep reining it in. Um, and I do. I mean, I like this. I, mean, I like the. I also like the ideas that are in the portfolio. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, they've they've raised an awful lot of money off the back of this, um, and you can see that that's definitely got something to do with the you know the political side of things. Um, because it's the founder, isn't it? Um, Vivek Ramaswamy is... Um... Vivek Ramaswamy, who we had a recording with the other day. I mean, I do think there's there's a lot of value in this. I mean, obviously, a lot of PR comes from from uh, the connection with Ramaswamy, who founded this company. And obviously, they're getting a lot more attention than another relatively small asset manager would, which, which by the way, comes at a, at a price because there's much more attention paid to uh, some former employers who have filed lawsuits against the uh, the company in the last few months for mistreating staff and pushing employees to violate securities law, that kind of thing. I'm, I would imagine you'd find a fairly large number of lawsuits against most big fund Company, fund management companies, but that's not really mentioned elsewhere. The company, by the way, intends to vigorously defend itself from, from these lawsuits. But it's it's interesting that the PR that they're getting is not just making people look at them, but making people put money with them. Well, yeah, and because they they do have, I mean, the themes he talked about are interesting. I mean, like nuclear is a good example. That's a particularly hot theme just now. Um, and, you know, you know, weirdly, you know, given that it was just sort of, we're talking about this in the context of not being very ESG. I mean, nuclear is actually one of the greenest things that you could get as long as you, you know, are, are willing to kind of rethink the, the kind of, uh, where was it, uh, Greenham Common sort of like approach to the, the nuclear, um, nuclear uh, industry. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I can see that the, the themes are appealing as well. Um, I'm not necessarily. I've got. I mean, on the downside. Oh, a downside. Yeah. There's a. Well, it's just there's a part of me that generally finds thematic ETFs a little bit unconvincing because I think that you know, but it's always the the temptation to sell the story over the the kind of content. Um, but that's more just. So let me ask yes. you, John. Yeah, let me ask you, if there was a strive in the UK, would it be a candidate for your auto enrollment pension? It's uh, a good question. I mean, pro probably I would approve from afar, but I probably wouldn't invest at the moment because I think, well, there's just, I think there's just too many other, I'd, I'd be more interested in investing with a decent UK value manager at the moment than invest in these themes specifically. Anti-ESG is sort of almost by default value, isn't it? Yeah, but in that case, I'd, I'd still rather go with someone that was explicitly value, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Um, you know, it's, and I, I, know I, feel, I, I feel kind of bad because I agree with the 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 points that they're making, that he's making. Um, it's just I, I've struggled to get excited about a pure sort of, you know, thematic ETF provider. It's, it's just, it's more a, it's more a kind of style thing than anything else. Um, although maybe I'm just taking against him because he voted for Bitcoin instead of gold. Maybe that's it. That was a first. I know, that, that was, was quite exciting to find someone that was you know. Know, very much. <laughs> I know. I should have kept him on longer to explain to us a bit more about why. Well, yeah. <laughs> right, so... That's a, that's a, a no from you on the basis that uh, Matt Cole believes in Bitcoin. Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this week's Merrin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, and I really hope you do, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Merrin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi. Additional editing by Blake Mables. Special thanks to Matt Cole and John Stafford for their time. And finally, do be sure to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. It's very good, and the link is in the show notes. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.